Well, it's good to be uh, good to be back with you today. Uh, for those of you that are new in our church, uh, I have not been away at a drug treatment facility. <laughs> I'm happy to say. <laughs> I have been on drugs for the last three weeks uh, because I had uh, had a knee replaced uh, three weeks ago Wednesday, and uh, so I've been uh, out of commission. Uh, when I was sharing this with the elders that this is coming and we need to plan the time off and so on, and and originally I had planned to preach last week, and I'm <laughs> I'm very thankful that Jim Hively said I think we should give you another week off and. Uh, because I would have been on drugs last week, um, and I would not have been in any condition really to preach. But uh, this week I've been getting back in the office and uh, doing about half, uh, half time, and uh, every day, of course, it's a little bit better. Um, I had uh, both knees partially replaced, uh, one two years ago and one three years ago, and uh, the one two years ago failed, and the one three years ago is failing, so I'm headed for another surgery probably another year. And uh, the doctor looked me right in the eye and he says, this is going to hurt more. And, and so I got a different doctor. <laughs> so uh, I'm, uh, I've been, uh, you know, recuperating from that. And then last Sunday was my, uh, my birthday and I was 58 years old. And, and so I've just kind of been meditating on, uh, on uh, old age and uh, my advanced and deteriorating condition, uh, I, got some, uh, I got some great birthday cards, uh, a couple of them from the grandkids, uh, if you can see that. But the, the best part is here. Yeah, you know how the rest of it goes. Um, yeah, that's from... Uh, from the grandkids over on the east side, and then Malachi, uh, Malachi made me a happy birthday, Grandpa, and there's the card, and there's a picture of him and me. So how good is that, huh? And then, and, and you know, a number of you gave me cards, which I appreciate very much. Thank you, and some of you didn't. <laughs> but. Some of those cards had a theme about getting older. <laughs> getting older means the blessing of looking back on where we've come from, looking forward to where we're going, and still having no idea where we parked the car. <laughs> and then uh, this one says, so you're another year older. Hey, look at the bright side. Okay, there is no bright side. <laughs> There's a bright light, but you're going to want to stay away from that. <laughs> and then I got a lovely gift from the so-and-so fellowship. Um, we, we have, uh, what's that? The, uh, we, we have a, a group of ladies that sew and Originally, it started out just as kind of a fellowship group just to get together and have fun. And over time, they've found a number of, of uh, things that they can make and give to people in, in different times of their life that are encouragement to them, like, like a quilt to uh, uh, an older person in a rest home or baby blankets when, when children are born. And, and they have their own tag 
sewn right into the item, and it says, made with love by ladies from First Baptist Church of Ferndale. I thought, how great is that? And what do you suppose they've given me? <laughs> An old man bib! <laughs> I know who you are. Yes, some of you are up there. Yes, I know. <sighs> oh. Sometimes we joke about age. Sometimes we complain. Those who are younger often want to be older, and those who are older often want to be younger and it seems like we're never quite happy with where we're at in life. And so I'm here today to say that I'm happy to be where I'm at in life at 58 years old, and I want to share why, and I want to share what I would call a philosophy of aging from the cradle to the grave, a Christian perspective on age. And I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you the, every herb that yields seed, which is in the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. Now if we go to chapter 2, chapter 2 basically has some details in the creation account. It expands on chapter 1. And so let's go to chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it, and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now drop down to chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, we're familiar with this part of the story, if you will, this, uh, these events God created man in perfection. And when God got done creating, he said, everything is very good. A little saying that was coined a few years ago, God don't make no junk. He did not make anything poor, anything with any uh, defect in it. 
And he made a perfect world, and he put Adam and Eve in it, and he said, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to have children and multiply and fill the earth. I want you to rule the earth. Um, you're in charge here. Humanity rules over the creation. And then he said, there's one rule. There's one tree that you're not to eat from. And of course, Adam and Eve broke that rule, and they came under God's condemnation. Now drop down with me to a part of the story that we are a little less familiar with, verse 22 of chapter 3. God goes through a series of, of curses and judgments on Adam and Eve, and he also, verse 21, made them tunics of skin. This is a, a, a pre-picture of the animal sacrifice, which is a picture of the blood sacrifice of Christ. And so instead of God sending them straight to hell, he was gracious and merciful, and he covered them with animal skins. He covered their nakedness, and, and he essentially provided salvation for them. But look at verse 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. In particular, man came to know evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now some of you are going, you're right, Pastor Dave, we don't read that part of the story very much. What in the world is that about? It would appear that God designed into mankind and into creation a means of sustaining life that involved eating from a particular tree. Now, don't let your imagination run wild for the rest of the sermon trying to figure out what that is. But if you go all the way to the last book of the Bible, God comes back to that and he talks about the leaves of the tree being for the healing of the nations and the tree of life there, and so on. And so, in some fashion, God has created us with an ability to live on and on, but needing certain kinds of sustenance. And God, in his mercy and grace, said, I'm not going to let Adam and Eve live forever, here's the key, in sin. And so I'm going to drive them out of the garden, put an angel there with a flaming sword so that they cannot eat from this tree which would allow them to live on and on in their sin. Think about the difficulties you have with sin and then think about living forever in that condition. God is very merciful. Turn to another passage that we don't read very much. It's one of the begats. Chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son. He was 130 years old before he had Seth. He begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. That must have been a family reunion. I guess technically, technically everybody on earth would have been in his family. <laughs> wow. 
Now, think about something with me, please. We know uh, that there's physical degradation in, in humankind that can't be stopped. It results in death. The death rate is one. We all encounter that. We know that our society is working feverishly to stop cancer, to stop diabetes, to stop uh, childhood illnesses, all these things, wonderful things. I'm glad for medical advancement. I, I reflected on this a number of times. When I was a young man in church, when I was a child, we had a list of shut-ins who could not get out of their house or into the church because this surgery hadn't been invented yet. So I'm happy for, for medical advancement. Don't get me wrong. I'm happy for as great a physical existence as you can have. But Adam and Eve lived from a perfect creation for almost a thousand years, even with the impact of sin. That's what an incredible human body God created. And so what we understand pulling these, pulling these, these things together would be this. Where are we at? Aging is abnormal in terms of God's original creation. God did not create Adam and Eve to age and die. Dying is abnormal. Death is abnormal. Now, if any of you have been around the emergency services, first responders, police, fire, medical, and so on, there's a little catchphrase that's used to train them in, in regard to a stress management and the catchphrase is this, when you have a difficult event that you go to, they say you're having a normal reaction to an abnormal event. Friends, it is not, it is not normal to die. God did not create us to die. It is normal to shun death. God did not create us to age. It, it is hard to age. And God did not create us for that. If you want to blame somebody for the problems of old age, according to what we just read, who should you be blaming? Adam and Eve. And if you really, if you really want to get yourself right with God, who should you be blaming? yourself in this sense if you were in the garden of eden would you have made a better choice than adam and eve no because we're all humans we all would have said oh hey i want more i want this i want that and we all would have fallen into sin this is not god's problem don't ever look up to heaven and say god why did you do this god didn't do it It's God who graciously came in and said, you know what? You, you will not be able to bear this if you keep on living. How many people in the world think that the most important thing is to keep on living? I don't know how many times I've heard people, you know, in a, in a difficult physical condition say, well, it's better than the alternative. Yeah, if, if you're going to hell, it's better than the alternative. God was so merciful to stop the sinful process, to, to, to put a termination point on human life. But what we find here is 
is that Adam and Eve lived till almost a thousand, and so did everybody else until what event? How many of you have studied your Bible and science well enough to know what event changed the lifespan of mankind? The flood. Now, we don't know exactly why God didn't see fit to tell us, but the scientists who are Christians who study the Scripture say, the Scripture talks about a vapor cloud that covered the earth, and it filtered the sunlight, and so the whole earth would have had a, a perfect tropical kind of climate. Things would have grown perfectly. It would have been a fine existence. You could have lived naked and been physically comfortable, barring the impact of sin and shame and so on. But when that came down, the sunlight came in, and the lifespan, if you go into the begat chapters and trace it, the lifespan goes from 1,000 years, zoom, right down to what we have now, about 70-plus years. God did not create us to die. He didn't, he didn't create us with decaying bodies. Everything that is negative about the aging process is the result of sin. But there's good news at the end of this story. God has a destiny for us that's incredible. Turn to John 20. I want to look at those verses that, uh, that Chuck read earlier and pick out a few things that, again, we don't tend to, to notice perhaps sometimes about from this passage. God's destiny for his children does not include aging and death. John 20. Um... Our destiny in heaven is summarized, uh, the, the quality of life that we will have is summarized by this verse from 1 John. Now, right now here in this existence, we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed in, in exact detailed terms what we shall be like, but we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, when it says it has not been revealed, parts of it have been revealed, but not, not in specific enough terms that we could say, I know exactly what it's going to be like. We walk by faith, not by sight, and in this area as well. But when this verse says we will be like him, it's pretty easy for us to go, oh, okay, Jesus was perfectly righteous. Always was, always will be. And so when we become like him, we will become perfectly righteous. And uh, that is absolutely right. But there's another part of being like Jesus, and it's here in John chapter 20. Um, let's read verse 19 and following. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. If we ask this question, what was the resurrection body of Christ like? The first answer is this, it was recognizable. They said, oh, it's the Lord, and they were happy. Okay, It's a small thing, but it's important for us to stop and say, there isn't some generic ghost form that we're all going to have in heaven. We're going to be recognizable. Won't it be great to have your mind freed from the effects of sin and from the, the, both physical and spiritual and to see all the people you've ever known over years, over millennia, you'll walk along and go, oh, hey, there's so-and-so, and there's so-and-so, and you won't forget their name. 
Wouldn't that be cool? Jesus' body was recognizable. Let's follow on. So Jesus said to them, Peace, as the Father sends me, so send I you. Verse 24, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them, and the other disciples said, We have seen the Lord. And he said, I don't believe it. I'm going to touch him. I've got to see if he's real. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, we'll come back to that, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And he said, here, Thomas, come and touch. Which tells us that Jesus' body was tangible. It was, it was touchable. He didn't pull a trick on Thomas. He didn't say, here, come and touch me, and then pull his hand back. Ha, 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 got you. No, he, he, he was touchable. If you remember back to the, right after the resurrection, one of the women who ran to the grave, and she fell down and was hugging Jesus' feet, which would have been an, an act of worship and of love. And he said, hey, I've got to go to the Father first. Hang on, I'll be right back. Jesus' body was tangible, but go right back to that part where it says, Verse 26, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace. Jesus' body was physical in a supernatural way. Now, I know that sounds paradoxical. I don't know how to express it any other way than to say that Jesus' body had a tangible nature, but not the same kind of a tangible nature that we know now for a human body. You know, when I, if I was to mentally picture a piece of wood, I'd say a piece of wood is a hard thing that, you know, there it is. That's a piece of wood. If I say this is a human body, I, I know what that's like. And, but Jesus was able to come through the doors, what we would call a, a spirit-type activity, and yet he was able to be touched. Dr. Luke makes this very clear when he writes these verses. The disciples were terrified and frightened and supposed they'd seen a ghost. This is uh, out on the beach when they're fishing, I believe. And he said, why are you troubled? Why have doubts arisen in your heart? Behold my hands and feet. Look at me, recognize me. It is I myself. Handle me. Handle me. See, there was, it was tangible. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While they still did not believe for joy. And they weren't skeptics. They were going, this is the greatest thing ever. I just can't believe it. They marveled. He said to them, do you have any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. How great is that? We get to eat in heaven. <laughs> the marriage supper of the Lamb. The new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thank you, dear. Look at that. We've been married so long. She knows what I need. <laughs> Jesus' body was recognizable. It was tangible, and yet it was physical in a supernatural kind of way. And when 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is, it's referring to the completion of the spiritual, physical process of salvation. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that when Christ comes to rapture the saints off the earth, who goes first? What? The dead. Do you think he's going to take ashes to heaven? Do you think he's going to take some skeleton out of the sea, some sailor that was buried at sea? No, he's going to go, be perfect! And then we who are alive and remain shall be changed, 1 Corinthians 15. And when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to spend a lot of time on this, but it says we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. What a great day. What a great future is ahead for us. Is it right to want that perfect existence sooner than later? Oh, yeah. And those of you who are struggling physically, that is a a big part of what God calls our hope. We're not going to live for a thousand years with with knees that will never be perfect again. We're going to have a perfect body in heaven that will be beyond what we can imagine. That's, that's our future. God has told us about the failed beginning. He's also told us about the, the wonderful time that is ahead. But he's given us some truth for here and now as well. I'd like you to write down a word because I'm going to use this word now throughout the rest of my sermon. And it's got three letters. It's era. E-R-A. If you're a baseball fan, you know new era baseball hats. That's not what I'm talking about. Era, a time of life, a period of life. We have this great era in eternity that will last forever. But right now, we have the eras of our human life. And I want to talk to you about what God says. So, so aging is not what he originally created. He's created this great destiny for us. But what do we do here in the middle? What do we do in this time? Well, I want to talk first of all about the era of childhood and just say childhood is a time of development. Now, I'm aware that as I go now, from what I have just been speaking about to what I'm going to speak about now, I'm moving into what I would call an application of the Scripture and not a direct command kind of teaching. What I've just been sharing with you is the clear, plain commands of God that can't be argued with, frankly. What I'm going to share with you now is a synthesis of a bunch of principles from God's Word. So if you want to argue with me a little bit afterwards, that's fine. But I hope you will gain some of these principles and begin to see this concept of of how we should be developing as we move through life. Childhood, the era of childhood is a time of development. There is a fundamental assumption throughout the Scripture regarding children and that is that they need to learn and grow and develop in every way that's what this passage right here is about children obey your parents in the lord for this is right honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth and you fathers do not provoke them to wrath but bring them up in the training and admonition of the lord clearly god believes that children need to develop and that it's adults, the parents, who need to develop them. Children need to take this seriously. Parents need to take it seriously. Children are not little adults. One of the things I heard John MacArthur say, maybe it was even before we had children, and it just stuck with me ever since, he said the fundamental problem with children is that they are children 
And we should take seriously our responsibility to train them and develop them in every way. Um, Certainly, this right here has to do with, primarily with spiritual training. But we see examples throughout the scripture and we know that, that if we're gonna prepare a child for an adult life, they need to learn all kinds of things. That's why we have schooling. Whether it's, you know, uh, the formal public school has been created in, in, uh, in our country or homeschooling or whatever it is, we know that kids need to learn some things in order to be effective as adults. And those things vary from culture to culture. We understand that. There is an assumption throughout the scripture that children benefit by accepting training and instruction from the Proverbs. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you wake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. There is an assumption that children benefit One of the fundamental challenges of childhood is accepting the input from your parents. No easier, there's, there's no way around that. And then you go to school and you got some teacher telling you what you need to learn. You come to church, you got some youth group leader telling you what you need to learn. And there's a fundamental challenge there and as the child grows older and, and moves toward adulthood, it becomes harder and harder. But God says it is fundamentally good that children would accept training and instruction. And we even see it with our Lord from Luke 2. And he said to, to his parents, this is when he was 12 years old and he, he stayed in the temple at Jerusalem teaching the teachers <laughs> while the parents were, were, you know, they were in this big entourage and they missed him and they got out of town a ways and they went, well, wait a minute, we forgot somebody, you know, like my mom left me sleeping on the pew when I was a child or something like that. <laughs> but I'm not bitter. <laughs> Jesus said, why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. They didn't fully, they didn't fully know who he was. In fact, It's possible they didn't fully understand who he was until after the resurrection. But then he went down with them, came to Nazareth, was subject to them. He was subject to them. Now, a lot of kids think they know better than their parents. And probably sometimes they do. This one always knew the right thing, I guess. What an incredible thing. He was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. We see that a number of times about Mary. Things happened around Jesus, and she went, boy, this this is a special child. And, of course, eventually she did understand. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. You know, if you, wanna, if you wanted a key verse for parenting, that might be a good one. Help your children increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Because that includes things that we normally think of as schooling and knowledge. It also thinks of social skills. It talks about spiritual things. And that was true of Jesus. And so the fundamental focus of childhood ought to be on development. 
in every aspect of life. And children, when that gets hard for you, let me give you an encouraging verse from Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for all things, for this is well-pleasing. And you said, Pastor Dave, I thought you were going to encourage me. I am, and here it is. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto your parents, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. You know, we talked about the, the, the judgment seat of Christ a few weeks ago from 1 Corinthians. If I understand this scripture right, your willing obedience to your parents will gain a reward from Christ in heaven. That puts obedience on a whole different level, doesn't it? It's not just making your parents happy. It's not just getting along to get what you want. But if you know Christ as your Savior, you can willingly obey your parents and, and gain the reward of God for that obedience. What, a, what an incredible thing. Childhood is a time of development. Now here's the part where I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to start to mess with you even more. Not only children, but parents. I put an age bracket on each one of these eras that I'm going to talk about. And the first one is 0 to 20. Now I use the word era. Okay, I'm not trying to say that when a child turns 20, they're done with childhood and they're an adult. You know, I, you meet people every once in a while who says, I've been on my own since I was 14. We had a, a, a brother and sister move to Tukwila, come to our church. They left their home when they were mid-teenagers due to the terrible nature of their family. And they literally lived on their own. They had jobs. They had their own apartment. They were legally emancipated. I'm not trying to say that there's a certain cutoff age. I'm just giving you an era. Because I would, I would just think about myself in regard to this era of childhood. I got married when I was 21. Isn't that right? Or was I 22? 21. You were 20. Okay. I went from living under my parents' roof to living under my own roof. Well, I was 21, basically. And I, I was in college in between there, but they were the ones writing the check. I was under their authority till I was 21. Was I a child? Absolutely. Now, some people merge into adulthood earlier. Some people merge into adulthood later. It's not just about where you live or who supports you. There's a variety of things. But here's the thing that I want you to grasp more than anything. Childhood is a time of development. If you're a kid at home, it is your job to learn and grow. Okay? And the reason for that is because young adulthood is a time of foundation. And I've marked this at 20 to 40, and I'll show you why here in just a minute. Young adulthood. One of the great examples of young adulthood in the scripture is Pastor Timothy. Pastor Timothy, you know, the books of 1 and 2 Timothy? Listen to this. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct, in love and spirit, in faith and in piety. If we talk to someone and call him a youth, we're probably thinking he's a teenager, right? I don't call young adults. I, I, uh, I don't call them, well, some of the people who used to be in my youth group, I call them kids, even though they have kids of their own. You know, that's just my own foolish uh, perspective. But Timothy is referred to as being a person of youth. 
And if you would study the biblical chronologies, most Bible scholars would say Timothy was about 30 years old. And so at 30 years old, Paul is saying, now don't let people look down on you because you're young. <laughs> you know, in the Old Testament, you couldn't become a priest till you were 30. Jesus didn't start his ministry till he was 30. And so this idea of when does childhood end and adulthood begins may be a little different than we have thought about it in the past. Listen to some of the other instructions that Paul gave Timothy. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Paul said, Timothy, I'm telling you a bunch of stuff. You need to think about it. He said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He said, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, and so on. Now, unless I'm missing something, that sounds a little bit like a parent talking to a child. Even though Timothy was a 30-year-old pastor of a church. And so what that tells me is this. Young adulthood is the time when we take all the things we have learned in childhood and apply them to productive, independent living, but not to the exclusion of godly influences. Timothy had learned God's word from his mother and grandmother, and then he had become a Christian under the ministry of Paul, and, and he had learned many things. <coughs> he had learned many things, but, and he had, literally, he had literally followed Paul around the Mediterranean as Paul planted churches, and then there came a time when Paul said, okay, now, Timothy, you stay here and pastor this church. And Paul walked away. And then he writes back and he says, now, Timothy, here's some things to think about. Here's something to think about. Here's something to think about. Here's something to think about. He said, don't look, let people look down on you because you're young, but do the ministry and so on. And, and so here's Timothy taking everything he's learned up until this point and applying it to his life and starting to function as an independent adult who is doing God's work, who's caring for his family, caring for himself, and that, to me, seems to be what the time of young adulthood is like. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5 when he talks about the body of Christ. And he says, likewise, you younger people. Now remember, he's not talking to children. He would have used a different word. He would have said, you children. And he would, then he would have used the word obey in talking about parents and so on. He's, not, he's talking to young adults. You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. One of the things that this tells me is our, our American concept of independence, which is I can do anything I want and you can't say anything about it because I'm an adult now. That is not a godly concept. The godly young adult says I've learned all this great stuff and now I'm going to start using it in my career, in my ministry, in my family. And they're using it, but they're still listening to the people. And we're going to talk who they're going to listen to in just a minute. But they're still listening and applying this truth as they're forming a life. It is a time of foundation, a time of building and forming. This is a time of life when marriages are formed, children are born, and careers are formed. These are days when we can work physically hard, long hours. We can endure late hours up with the kids. 
But in all of our efforts to establish ourselves as adults, we've got to remember one thing. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. And he goes on to describe what we would call really old age in this passage. And, and he says something that I have begun to see as I have, have worked more with folks near the end of their life. He says, don't wait to develop your life with the Lord because you might wait too long. I knew a man years ago who, who came around the ministry we were part of and uh, went to lunch and just tried to see where he was at spiritually and seemed pretty obvious that he did not know the Lord. And so I shared the gospel with him, tried to draw him in toward that and so on. And, uh, 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 you know, he was, he was mildly interested, but not too much. Kept attending church for a while, and then pretty soon he, he fell out. He fell away because he got Alzheimer's. And he got Alzheimer's hard and fast. And do you know what happens when you get Alzheimer's hard and fast? The days of knowing the Lord are over. If you have not known him already. Because God's truth has to come in through our mind. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. One of the challenges to young adulthood is this. We feel pretty invincible. You know, the, part of the whole impetus for the government health care shift, and, and we're not here to discuss that in any detail whatsoever, but is there's a lot of young people not paying for health insurance, and we've got to get them paying in order to subsidize everybody else. Well, economically, that's a good thing. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a logical thing. But the question to ask is, why don't those young people want to buy insurance? Because they don't need it. And you know what? They really don't. I need it desperately. <laughs> I'm hitting my deductible this year. I can tell you that right now. I got a bill from the hospital before I even went in. <laughs> Uh, this is how much we think it's going to cost, and this is how much we think your insurance is going to pay, and wouldn't you like to share with us right now? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> oh, yeah, I need insurance desperately, as most people do as they move into some older years, and young people don't. They feel invincible, and that invincible feeling also leads them to think, you know, I, I should be developing my life with the Lord, but God, I'm so, I'm so busy with all, with the family and the job and all, da, 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 da. you know, there's going to be some time. There's going to be some time. There's going to be some time. And God says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. You know why? It's because of this. As the days of invincibility give way to the days of difficulty, you're going to be looking around to gather strength and say, how can I face this day of difficulty? How can I face this era of difficulty? Oh my goodness, it's the greatest difficulty I've ever had. I'm losing my, 
my parent, I'm losing my loved one, I'm losing my spouse. How can I face this? And you look around to gather strength, and it's not there because you did not build your life in the Lord during your youth. God's life of Christ is gained one day, one day, one day, one day at a time. And when you walk for days and, and let the life of Christ go, you can't get the days back. You can start here, but now it's this day and this day that you could have been living way back there. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. You cannot make up for what you squander, but you can start at any time. Young adulthood is a time of foundation. Build it well. Middle age is a time of high productivity. Now, you know, again, you can fuss with me about 40 to 60 or whatever. I tell you what, do a little research on life expectancy, and you know what you'll find? You'll find this. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it's soon cut off and we fly away. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, says the average life expectancy in our country is 72.8. Okay? Now, if you don't mind, if you mind, keep your hand down. If you are over 70, would you raise your hand? If you're over 80, keep it up. Okay, put them down. Is this scripture true about the difficulty when you pass 70? <laughs> Think I was doing great till I hit 70, and I don't know what happened, but things started to fall apart. <laughs> now, that's what God said 3,000 years ago, and the CDC hasn't changed it. And so that makes, if the CDC is right about 72.8 being the life expectancy, then middle age is 36. Okay? Middle age is 36. Middle age for Adam was 450. But that ain't going to be you. <laughs> but middle age, as we, as we build the foundation in young adulthood, we come out of young adulthood into middle age, and I've called it a time of high productivity because if you have lived well in childhood and young adulthood, you have laid the foundation of life the foundation in your family, the foundation in your career, the foundation in your ministry. You have practiced, you've taken those, those skills that you learned in childhood and you practiced them and you developed them and you became good at certain things. You're not going to be good at everything, nobody is, but you've learned and developed in your young adult years, you've learned how to interact with people. You've taken God's truth into your heart and gained wisdom. And all of that leads to a time of great productivity. There's a great awareness of how life should be lived and what should be done. So you see, there are some things you cannot understand until you have observed or lived it. You don't have to live everything, but there are things that need to be learned by observation. From Proverbs, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. 
but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable, you do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. This man knew what he's talking about. You know how I know? Because he starts out by saying the, the lips of an immoral woman, and it could be an immoral man as well, they drip honey. In other words, it sounds good. Whether you're seeing it on the screen or hearing it out of some person's mouth, oh, it sounds good. And then he says, but in the end, it is bitter as wormwood. You can't learn that second part of that lesson except by observation or actually participation, one of the two. And so the young adult is wise to listen to the middle-aged adult who has learned some things by observation. And the young adult is also wise to listen to what the parent says, because the parent here, can you hear this parent saying, please don't go down this path? Let me just put it in really simple terms. Don't play in the street, you'll get hurt. The parent is going on and on. And the call to the young adult is live by faith. Which is also the call to the child. Live by faith, trust me. I do know, I have seen, maybe I've been there. Live by faith. And so as we learn these lessons and come into middle adulthood, we're able not to fall ourselves. We're able to, to help others and to encourage others. And we're able to live effectively in whatever God draws us to. When Sue and I were first in the ministry, we lived in an apartment in the church over at Nooksack. And, uh, you know, before our kids came, you know, we were there, uh, see, we were married about two, three years. So, you know, sometime in those first two or three years, we're living in the church and, you know, we had something to do one night and we didn't have any television. You know, there, that was before cable got to Everson, if you know what I'm talking about. And it certainly wasn't in the church. And so we're over in the church office doing some office thing, planning some youth event, whatever we're doing. And here comes a knock on the church door, and here comes this, this 18, 19-year-old girl in. And as I recall, you know, she wasn't, you know, it was like she got out of bed in her night clothes or something and came. And, and um, her boyfriend had been physically abusing her. And I can remember this gal coming in, and, 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 and here's what I was thinking. I mean, other than, other than that's wrong, nothing went through my mind. <laughs> I, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? How do I help this girl? I mean, I was probably three years older than her. Now, if that happened now, I know some things that would say, it, it wouldn't be, ah, it would be, hey, let's sit down, let's talk about this, let's, let's, where you at, what's going on, what can we do, and how can we generate some resources, and, and I would know all the people in the church, I'd say, hey, can, can you take this girl in tonight? I was a young man who was empty, but I determined to learn everything I could so that as I came into my middle years, I would be able to serve the Lord. Middle age is a time when you build on that foundation of young adulthood. 
You take God's truth and you apply it in your life and you can become a significant servant of God. And then one day, middle age gives way to older age. And I know you're going to fight me on this one because I'm going to say 60 on. And if I was 60, I'd be able to say it without arguing too much. But again, it's an era. And, and some of you, frankly, we're Charlotte. Charlotte still hasn't entered old age. <laughs> I think Charlotte's going to go straight from, straight from uh, middle age to eternity, you know. <laughs> and some of the rest of you as well. So Lord bless you with that. Um, you know, my mom, when my mom goes to the doctor and they say, how old are you? And she tells them, they go, no, it cannot be true. <laughs> Unfortunately, that gene bypassed me. Um, now, here's the thing you need to think about. Old age is generally characterized, with the exception of Charlotte, um, <laughs> by less physical strength, but more spiritual influence. Yes, we're going to lose some things, but we have the opportunity to, to participate in some things that we might not have otherwise. Listen to, to what Paul said to Philemon. Therefore, I might be very bold in Christ to command you what to do. Paul is writing to Philemon about a change that needs to happen, and really he's writing about a huge cultural shift in the world, about how, an, how a man who owns a slave treats him and so on, especially when he's a brother in Christ. And he says, I could command you, and Paul could, because he was the, the revealer of God's truth, a lot of it, and he says, I could command you, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, Philemon, listen, you know me. I'm an old man. You know the spiritual ministry I've had in your life. You, you, you can read that book and see about their relationship. The Apostle Paul built an incredible reputation during his middle-aged years. Everyone knew his integrity for God's word, his intensity of love for people, his unceasing service to God and the church. And, and truly with Paul, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it's found in the way of righteousness. You know what I thought about this week? I've never pictured Paul with gray hair. I've always pictured him with a big, big head of brown hair for some reason, you know, like some strong young guy, and he wasn't. He was a frail old man. He'd been beat literally to death several times. And he says, here I am, Paul the aged, but the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it's found in the way of righteousness. And so Paul became a man of great influence. Do you suppose Paul had aches and pains? I mean, after being beaten and broken and, and so on for so, so many times over so many years, and not having good medical care after the fact, I mean, it, boy, he, he had to be barely moving. Do you suppose he longed for some medicine that he couldn't even conceive of that we have today? He did not go around with a long lip saying, growing old isn't for wimps. <laughs> In older age, 
your positive, mature life will gain the opportunity to influence others. They will want to know how you have done it and continue to do it. You can't talk about raising kids till you raise some kids. Yesterday, I spent, uh, I spent a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, on the phone with a brother, a brother in Christ, <laughs> mostly letting him share about his difficulty. He's a very significant servant of the Lord who's going through a hard time right now. And I was able to be an encouragement to him not because I am something special, but because in my young adult years and coming through my middle adult years, I have worked at growing in the Lord and listening to people and, and of knowing God's truth. And so God has allowed me to grow to where I can help this brother. If he called me up right now and said, would you come help me build my house? I'd have to say no. Can't do it. I'm not worth a hoot physically right now. But he didn't call up asking for that kind of help. Our older years give us an opportunity to share what God has done from our younger years. Lessons of faithfulness, lessons of, of God's faithfulness, how he is blessed, how he has cared. Our older years when retirement comes, bring more time to be in the Word. And they bring more time to be in prayer. And they bring more opportunity to learn from the school of pain. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Anybody can be happy. Well, not anybody, but it's not hard to, to enjoy life when physically everything is great, everything's sailing along and so on. But when the difficult days come, it's not so easy to be joyful. But God knows that, and he's allowing difficulties so that people will look at us and go, how in the world are you joyful in this situation? And we have the opportunity to talk about the Lord you know that more time in the word and in prayer and in pain means a closer walk with the Lord. Which means even more opportunities to influence people for the Lord. Well, let me give you an application point here if, if you haven't gotten any so far. Acceptance of every era is key to pleasing God and enjoying life acceptance and here's where I'm getting to the part if I wanted to tur turn it around I'd say stop complaining stop complaining because you're a child stop complaining because you're a young adult and, you, and, and the old guys have all the cool cars stop complaining and, and here's the fundamental truth that needs to be applied it's from James chapter 1 and you know what I'm going to quote don't you Count it all joy when you fall into 
various trials. Is the era in which you're living a trial for some reason? Then what should your attitude be? Count it all joy. Why? Why? Because God is going to work through our difficulties to make us more like Christ. Are you a child under authority? Count it all joy. Are you a young adult chafing at the constraints of those who are in control? Those old middle-aged guys who tell you what to do? Count it all joy. Are you in middle age struggling with the realization that you aren't 20 anymore? Count it all joy. Are you moving into older age with its physical struggles? Count it all joy. Why? Because godliness with contentment is great gain. The last thing I said before I went under for surgery to the surgical team was this. You better do a good job or you're going to be a sermon illustration. (laughs) They thought I was joking. (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, uh, it appears they did a fine job, and uh, so the surgeon gets a well done. You know, after two partial knee replacements and one hole, I know, I know my physical activity level is going to be different. When I moved here 13 years ago, when Sue and I moved here, we, t- we tore into a house that needed all kinds of work. I painted it, I roofed it put in flooring, paint, you know, painted the inside, took out the wood stove. I took out the wood stove, the, the wood stove insert. I got it out by myself, painted it, and got it back in, okay? Not strictly by physical strength, but a certain amount of cleverness. Um, wouldn't even attempt that today. Not even going to try. But you know what? I don't care. Because I can do things. I can do things for the Lord now. I couldn't do them. I had to live through some things. I had to learn some things. I had to practice some things. I hope I'll get back to good physical activity. I expect to. I'm working toward it. Went to the gym yesterday for the first time. And, uh, you know, I expect to get back to physical fitness, uh, Lord willing. But I'm not... (laughs) I'm not even going to pursue being a young man anymore, much less ever be one. When my son played football in high school, I was the assistant trainer. I did all kinds of things to help the team on game nights. And right now, I couldn't even stand up for a whole game. But that's okay. Because my son is the one doing things with young people. I'm not as handsome as I used to be. Uh, 
But you know what? The people who asked me to speak at the pastors and wives retreat didn't check to see how good looking I was. If you then be risen with Christ, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to embrace what you have for us at whatever age we are at today and for however many years you leave us here. I pray in Christ's name, amen.